Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about open source, where we ask the question, is open source driving innovation? Is it a necessary component of right to repair and ownership of the technologies? And are there commercial drivers where people want those capabilities? Uh, this is also a part of a right to repair discussion that we've been having. And so what you'll see in the podcast is that we start with right to repair and we keep talking about that a bit and then transition into a deeper conversation about what's going on with open source. Is it being innovative? Who is leading? How is it working? A uh, really fascinating conversation that I am certain you will enjoy. Did you see that the FTC voted unanimously? For the right to repair? No. Yeah, that just happened yesterday. Let's, I, I think actually it would be interesting to talk about the right to repair monopolies. Certainly has a lot going on that's pretty relevant to a lot of our topics as it relates to IoT and ownership of data. Because one of the things that is a major issue, even if you don't have full rights to repair. It has been um, the right to have direct access to diagnostics for equipment, for example, mm. um, in the agricultural space. Um, farm equipment, ag equipment. You go all, all this in general, yeah. Yeah, but but um, in in particular, the you know, John Deere cat. All of these folks, you can't get you know a, an owner or or someone who's leasing uh, equipment cannot get access to diagnostics, and the result is, you know, they have no idea if it's a, it's something they might be able to deal with and you know fairly uh, fairly easily instead of loading a big piece of equipment on a truck hauling it several hours to a repair facility. Um, when you're in the agriculture business, that is a, that's a big, that's a big chomp out of your, out of your day, especially given the yield is very sensitive to timing, you know, when you, when you're doing, uh, when you're doing harvesting, when you're doing planting, things like that. So, that has a that has has some significance there. Ag really takes takes agriculture has really seemed to be a, a real um, eye of the storm on that. I, I'd be interested because you know I want I think that is its own topic and we can well we can do that on the nineteenth. Um, but I also think it's a good teeing point for open source. Um, and bringing, bringing back, because the, the funny thing about a lot of the right to repair stuff I'm seeing is it's very much about device, physical, ownership, cars, stuff like that. The software side of this um, does not, has not really been the subject of the same conversation. Um, and there's a part of me of, of right to repair. And there's a part of me that thinks about open source and the value of open source um, as a right to repair you know, it, it definitely has been a movement yeah. like a, and um, like not just in, in, in agriculture, but I'm going to mention automotive uh, manufacturing as well. Like the, there's certain manufacturers that have very specialized equipment that have a GPS unit in them. And if you move them like two feet to one side, they're DRM locked. Yeah. Um, so let me ask, that let me ask you. Let me ask you a question, Rob. Your your statement about software and right to repair. Yeah, there would be an argument, and and most people would at least start there, that would say, open source software, almost by its definition, is a has a pathway to right to repair right on top of it. Because it's open source, um, individuals can tear into the code, find where 
there is a problem, if there's a bug, if there's, mm. if there's something wrong. And, you know, put in the, the uh, you know, the pull requests, put in the, um, the issues, you know, with your own analysis and things. It seems like there is a fairly, um, fairly clear path to write to repair with respect to open source software. Am I missing I, some point that you're making? Yeah, well, I, I, this is where I think the, the ideal of open source really varies from the reality of, of what it takes to do that. Um, and, and, cause, and, and we've seen this writ large in a, in a whole bunch of, of practicing systems. So, so you're entirely right. If, this, if the code is open source, then I could conceivably look at the code, fix my problem, or find out the source of my problem and address it. And, and those, are, those are definitely benefits. Um, the, the idea that somebody could, you know, there's there re relatively rarefied individuals that can read, a, read the source code of something, map it to a problem that they're having, and even understand what that, that problem is. But right. let's, let's assume that that happens. The, the challenge is, and this is exactly what CentOS did to RHEL, is that actually building the code that you then need to install is actually a whole nother body of software. So if, if I was gonna, you know, to, not so that I even assume that it's making it upstream. If I was to fork some, some piece of code, fix it for me, I wouldn't just, that, that fix isn't sufficient. I actually have to have the build process Right, I have to have right all the pieces and parts that go into building that software. And for something like an operating system, that's a significant amount of work. I was just listening to um, Greg Kutzer talk about the the Rocky Linux pieces, and it took them months to actually create a repeatable build environment for Rocky, you know, for for basically a copy of RHEL. Um, and they had all the source, they had all the pieces, they had all the components. Um, so. I don't think it's as simple as, hey, I can fix my software. And then if you were going to, and then and and then there's a whole nother level of problem, which says that if I make a fix, getting it upstream, so it's part of the the current, the base, the code of the base code is in itself another degree of community operation that is completely outside of all that. And that, you know, a lot of these open source projects are controlled by entities that are monetizing the software. And aren't necessarily uh, actually even if they weren't monetizing it, they they don't have an incentive necessarily to take any patch. The patch has to fix functions, solve problems, be part of a process, and things like that. So, um, and the overhead, frankly, of taking a patch from a community member um, for the people maintaining the trunk of that code can be really high. So. A lot of the ideals of why why you want open source and how open source is going to work, the cost of of doing that work at scale, even at small scale, um, can be really high. I'm, and while I'm not disagreeing, yeah, on the out, you know, at at a fundamental level, if I were to draw an analogy. Um, if I take an iPhone or a, or a, you know, a mechanical Swiss watch um, and I can manage to do my own repairs on either of them with kind of tools that don't quite fit, but I can make, you know, make work, right? Yeah. You know, a big cheerful, you know, big, you know, Phillips head screwdriver. Um, I'm at risk. I'm putting my, you know, something that I, I've purchased at risk. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, there are in many cases, well, here's a question. Are the tools that you're referring to for builds and, you know, going through that entire process, are they unreasonably complex and unreasonably costly to use mm. on purpose in order to prevent some of the things that you're talking about, or are they necessary for the organizations and the communities that are 
maintaining code that is being, in some cases, used by, you know, millions? Um, I, I'm going to shy away from any, it, from, from um, a specific intent on that even though it's tempting, because I think there are people who, who would, would argue that, yes, they, they, those are intentionally done. I, d I don't subscribe to that. Like I, like, I don't subscribe to the idea that oh, big open source projects don't have good operational characteristics because people want to sell the operational support. But I, I so I, I don't think it's an intent. Okay. But I do think that it's, there is a lack of incentive to to fix those parts of the process. Okay, and what would mean what besides money crossing somebody's palm would be an appropriate incentive? Um, I think that it ends up there, there's either going to be a regulatory requirement, or there has to be a consumer intent to not the, the consumer. So, so I, this is a really, and I think this is, this is where the overlap on right to repair and open source actually work really, really cleanly together. If, if people didn't buy phones that they couldn't change the battery of, if changing the battery or changing the screen of your phone was economically the, you know, either, either culturally or economically a, a important choice, Mm -hmm. then then people would not buy iPhones because they can't repair them. And the same is the same as right this and this happens with open source. So so open source software to bring it back to open source the idea that you, that an an individual company can fix a bug in their software if it's open source software is is you know that is pretty well accepted as not true you have to if you want to contribute back to open source an open source project you have to maintain people who have that as a daily job right in a discipline the idea that your team is going to find a bug in you know kubernetes and then yeah. fix and upstream that change back to improve kubernetes as a whole i think nobody expects that to happen um anymore right um so it's the same type of thing it's are we're, we're we're not when we're consuming uh, pick on Kubernetes when we're consuming Kubernetes we don't have an expectation that the people who are using Kubernetes as just enterprise consumers have the capability or will maintain the capability to do that fix themselves right so the, so the value of it being open source is from from a I can fix it change it take it on myself really is minimal. I, um, I I would disagree with that. Cool. Um, so the value might be minimal for new devices or new new releases of the software, but as you go into the the tail end uh, of the the software lifecycle, uh, or or even the device lifecycle, like I, for example. Uh, look at the, the open source Android projects. They're mm -hmm. mainly geared towards the phones that are out of support. But they're, they're still functional, but they're not supported by the official software anymore. So these open source projects like PostMarket OS, Lineage OS, they extend the lifetime of these products. Same happens with 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 other sectors, farming, automotive, manufacturing, etc., you you have you have products that are no longer officially supported. That they might not be good enough for enterprise because the enterprise wants the the support contract, but the, there is still a, a. I don't know if it, if I if I should call it a niche because it, it's I I believe it's a larger market. For, for for these out of support products, I I think that's an excellent example and a really good use case of of where um, there you know there is a real 
a real need for this, right? The idea that you have a proprietary product or even an open source project um, that stops being supported on your infrastructure or hardware or, how, you know, or your application, that your ability to update it, maintain it and get access to it, I think is that's, that's really useful. Um, does, do you think that some of these um, licenses like what Chef did where they have basically a two-year freeze out on their code base. So they have a license that's effectively, you know, latest releases are, are you know, controlled licensed, you know, protected more. And then they fade into an open source license from that perspective where a two-year-old or a three-year-old version of the software, if that's what you're using is, you know, available and free or open. I shouldn't say free necessarily. Um, that's a that's a hard one to answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, just me taking a step back. Um, the open source goes certainly beyond the the right to repair or, or the right to maintain. It's yeah. it's the right to to modify, to tinker. Um, so. I guess the question is, if the supported version is good enough for you, then you're you're not likely to push for open source on it because it does what you need it to. Once mm-hmm. your needs extend, uh, reach beyond the boundaries of the supported version, uh, you can either depend on, on on the goodwill of the developers and, and, and hope that they, they will provide the features that you need, or you're going to start reaching into open source. Mm-hmm. And and if, does, does that include forking and variations from that perspective? Yes. Yeah. I mean, does- the... We, we we saw this happen with to some degree with with, with Elasticsearch, what, where they changed their their the license. I was I was uh, thinking about Elasticsearch too. Forked it. Right, Amazon. Well, I'm, Amazon. I'm I'm not going to deny okay. that that I, I'm not going to uh, say that Amazon didn't have ulterior motives. Like for them, it's it's a monetary thing. Like they, they want to be able to <laughs> bill for Elasticsearch on 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 their own terms, uh, but. Ultimately, the the fact that they did fork it and they are actively maintaining a version with a with a different license that that is arguably more open source than than Elasticsearch current Elasticsearch. license, uh-huh. it is benefiting the community. And there's now an ecosystem around this open search product that is uh, that Elasticsearch is bleeding into. I, and this one, that one's a specifically challenging case because Amazon's monetization does not, you know, they don't monetize the software per se where Elastic does. Um, and so this is, a, this is a place where the open source license was used. Um, <laughs> now, now we get into the controversial statements, right? It, the open source license was used in a way that is compliant with the license but out of expectation for the original authors of the software. Yeah. Right. Um, Which I think is a general challenge with open source in general. We've seen people objecting to, you know, how software they've authored that was open source licensed is used, um, you know, in commercial or governmental or, you know, uh, terms and, and, We've had there's been conversations of an ethical use license and some things like that that I think are incredibly different, difficult to. Um, I, I mean, it's 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 a contract law challenge in general, not not, not just software. Um, it it's perhaps more visible with with, with software on, on software licenses, not necessarily open source, but but open source is through a big portion of it. Um. The, uh, the compare and contrast, uh, if you want to 
think about this would be Spinnaker, where Netflix has all of its operation software open source, and suddenly Spinnaker became something that a larger community was interested in, and Netflix had to step up and figure out how to continue to uh, manage and control the software in many ways so that their uses were still being uh, addressed and not being written out of the code by people who weren't part of their, <laughs> their project and yet still be out there and useful to the, the folks who were using it. Uh, so uh, Spinnaker versus Elasticsearch. And so a couple of things to look at there. I mean, Spinnaker to me feels a, a bit like an outlier on, on the net on the Netflix side. Like typically, Netflix open sources their, their products that they maintain it for themselves on, on the, but they're maintaining for the very specific use case. Like yes. you, you don't see Kiosk Monkey for for GCP because Netflix is is an AWS uh, user. So, uh, so they they tend to, they open source their products. Typically, unnecessary. Okay, we have this. Go if you want to use it. Go ahead. If if not, fork it or or or, or whatever. I'm surprised that they did they, they didn't went the, the the fork route or or I, I mean, well, it, it my expectation is, and I haven't watched the life cycle of those projects specifically. Is that they're 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 if they're maintaining the project as their internal tools, they don't they have very little need or desire to take upstream contributions. Exactly. So so they're basically saying this is a reference model, fork it if it if you need to productize it. Um yeah. like they, 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 they have no obligation to, to maintain it for, for a larger audience. Right. And they they actually when Spinnaker took off, they had literally no understanding of what a larger community around an open source project was, how it was going to affect their project or what they should do about it or anything else. So they were, <laughs> there's something they go, whoa, what are we supposed to do? Uh, but, mm -hmm. and with regards to the AWS con, uh, statements. That's absolutely true. Everything's focused on AWS until you start. I I recently talked to a friend who's director of ops there, uh, and everything's AWS except for streaming. They fully own streaming. It is not on AWS cloud, Correct. and so all of their tools and monitoring and whatnot is directly towards a private cloud specifically set up for streaming. So those streaming tools and everything related to streaming could be, should be looked at as something extremely important for anyone who wants to do streaming because they're doing it on such a large scale. Mm. And that's where suddenly an open source community could easily coalesce and can they actually interact with an open source community just because their tools are open source doesn't mean that they have any interest or insight into a community that that's using their tools and changing them in a different direction than they are. Right. On, 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 the, on the flip side, how big is the community around streaming providers? Mm -hmm. I, I, mean, I mean, typically, <laughs> typically the, the streaming providers are, are are the content products as well. So, so you're, it it feels like it's kind of implicit that we're, we're talking about companies with larger infrastructure. So. So I don't know if if there is a desire to have uh, an open source community around that. I could I, be wrong. I well, it's. I mean, boy, Rocky, do you, go ahead. I'll, I'll hold my. I was just gonna say, the the companies, a number of them now, are large, but there are also a lot of companies out there that might sit there and go, 
we're at the point now where we're like Netflix. We want full control of our streaming. We want to move out of AWS or GCP or Azure. I doubt that they'd be actually in GCP, but uh, mm-hmm. I could certainly see them in, in AWS. Uh, so there are companies that are not big enough to move out and uh, weren't big enough to move out until these tools appeared because suddenly they have they can build their own infrastructure to their own liking. But there's also the whole maker community. There are a lot of people out there who would love to be able to control their own content and streaming and whatnot, uh, almost like at a hobbyist level. And with 5G becoming more popular, that becomes a, a bigger thing. In the US, it's not so much because we don't have good broadband infrastructure, especially for up. But in Europe uh, and likely Asia, that's a totally different statement. And certainly in in Asia, I can see the folks doing a lot of this just because of the culture and environment around uh, streaming and entertainment and uh, making your own videos and stuff. So it's, it's unclear where it could go, but it's certainly, there are lots of companies that are smaller than Netflix that could take advantage of what Netflix has done. And then they're also the individual maker type thing folks. I, I, I see thriving communities around things like audacity or, um, right where it's where it's a an individual tool on a desktop where you you can have or FFmpeg or something like that that's that's client utilities seem to be able to sustain community involvement um, in a in a platform like that even Linux Linux you know Linux is there's a you know, million of them with relatively small footprints because you can do one that solves a a specific client need I I feel like platform software is different um, right and we've been you know front lines and part of very intentionally formed communities like around what happened for OpenStack, where where they formed the community first, even before the software really existed. Uh, and Kubernetes, where you know the software was very very nascent when when um, the community was forming around propagating that. Um, which I, th- I feel like those are different. Those are different efforts, right? Where they build a community to maintain software and then start building the software, um, which is different than somebody saying, "Oh, I have a thing I need to do." Um, I'm trying to connect that back to your your Netflix example because I could see the Netflix tools and tooling being forked. Somebody saying, "This is something I'm going to maintain as a product or a project," um, but to do that requires it's a very different. Um, back to, I think the point I was talking about earlier, it's a very different, um, component to build a, the, the build that and distribute the software in a consistent way than it is, and then maintain it and support people using it. than it is to just, um, put together a client. Was that coherent? I, I feel like I'm making two points and it's, Uh, it's, it's sort of coherent, but it's more along the line, I think. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, it's, it's, you're looking at it from the user perspective. And if you think about it from the, um, content providers, uh, perspective, like, uh, Klaus was talking about, uh, in mm-hmm. some ways, possibly the biggest contender for, uh, we're back to the Elasticsearch and that. Netflix has all these open source tools for streaming. And one of the biggest benefactors of that could be AWS. And so they could actually take those tools and fork them because Netflix doesn't want to add functionality or change functionality to make it work on AWS and possibly make it perform more poorly on their own system. <laughs> do, do you do you think 
AWS could be looking at Netflix's streaming code and then trying to and taking a competitive advantage or shortening the the window. To I don't know TV. what products AWS has for streaming, but yes, I mean I certainly would be if I was AWS. Going beyond AWS, like if if I was Amazon, I, I would since they have their own streaming platform. So, yeah, Amazon uh, Prime. So I was. That, um, that's an important clarification. I was thinking about Amazon in, the, in this case, yes. Or if Amazon wanted to offer it as a service, they could then bundle it. I, I actually think that the presence of these cloud providers changes the dynamic for some of these, these um, platforms and, and open source communities. Um, one of the big differences between Kubernetes and OpenStack is Kubernetes basically came out of the gate saying, yeah, here's a script that installs on Amazon. And, and it was super easy. They didn't have to worry about infrastructure. They didn't have to worry about variation or data center configuration. They were literally like, run this script, it installs and works. Whereas something where we were dealing with OpenStack, it started with get your hardware, set up your hardware. Here's 10 ways you could do it. Please try and follow the directions. And then, you know, after that, it was still chaos um, because the system was designed to work on, you know, BYO hardware. Um, and I, I think I think the presence and availability of consistent infrastructure is revolutionary from an open source perspective. Um, I would I would say that OpenStack's hard. I mean, it's hard to call it a fault, but let's just temporarily call it that. OpenStack's fault was not so much the um, whether they were cloud. Uh, friendly or not, uh, but uh, as you were saying, like Kubernetes, there is here's a script you run it, on, and you're set. So, so the the that one click install equivalent uh, is what made Kubernetes more attractive. I mean, I I looked at OpenStack years ago, and another point just VMware or, or Proxmox, just because it gave me the the simpler install and it was good enough for me. And at that point, once I, I, I was on, on, on the other virtualization platforms, the incentive to move to OpenStack uh, was not good enough. Like OpenStack had more features or, or more features available at the same price point, uh, but didn't have that uh, like, like a need to, to, to switch to it just for those features. So, so I, so I think I think what, what ended up hurting OpenStack was just that they didn't make adoption easy. They they focused a lot on statement. on adoption in community growth, and this was actually an intentional choice. OpenStack focused on community growth, developers, 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 commits. Right, that, that's what they. That's what the the. the community was very incented to have a lot of contributors to the product, to the project, mm -hmm. um, from a lot of different commercial sources. That was that was a driver. There, they, there wasn't a lot of incentive in the project to then turn that into a consumable unit. Um, that was that was left to individual vendors with individual distros. And well, doesn't that go back to, again, incentives of the dominating commercial entity behind the project, you know, Google having an incentive to uh, uh, commoditize the infrastructure layer and focus at the, you know, with data tools, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, versus OpenStack being dominated by Rackspaces, whose uh, uh, financial incentive was around selling professional services, thereby not wanting to make it turnkey easy to deploy correct that's that's i agree with you i think that, that that incentive and same i mean that was definitely true of marantis canonical red hat in these in those models um yeah right the, the idea of, of licensing the product was you know it wasn't it wasn't a product it was a project um i, I also is, see go ahead i, I was gonna say I, I also see OpenStack as being 
closer to being an academic product than a commercial product. As you said, as I said before, developers, developers, developers in the community. These are developers that wanted to build features. They didn't care about making it easy for others to use the features that just wanted to build them. So it, it's more of a research product than a, than a commercial product in, in that sense. Product with, is a strong term here. <laughs> okay, yeah. ecosystem, maybe. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, and part of that was, uh, again, no product program managers Nobody sitting there saying, what do you need besides code to turn this into a product? It's just like, you got the code, that's good enough. And code is not good enough. You need to have uh, some standards with, within across the projects. You need to have, uh, uh, like you said, installation and, uh, mm -hmm. and configuration tools that make it easy to get this thing up and running and usable. Uh, so, yes, academic is in many ways a good description because also these developers intended to not understand the commercial world and the large scale world. So they weren't building for scale in most instances. They weren't coding for scale. But, all right. So if, if we take that up a, a level and take OpenStack out, because one of the questions I have for the group is, is the, are we going to see open source make, oh, this is provocative because you have to, you'd have to think that open source is on a downward trend, um, make a comeback, right? And, and I'm, let me be specific, right? we've, we've got open source projects that are products like Elastic that are feeling very threatened by service providers. Service providers are offering the open source alternative or coming out with their own versions of the service. Nobody cares if it's open source or not necessarily. It's they're paying for the service, they get the service. They're not trying to run it themselves. Um, or they're Open, I see a lot of open source that are small pieces that fit into a bigger thing, like part of Kubernetes. Even those end up being services more than they end up being products. Um, is, is the innovation or the disruption from open source not, the, not a factor that it was? I, I would say open source is not going away, uh, and 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 I don't think, and I disagree with with, with your assessment that that there, that there is a trend, that that appears to be going away. Um, I would say more open source has shifted targets. What what once you once you have a platform that is established, where where open source has very little to add to that platform, at, at least uh, commercially or, or, or as, as an incentive to, to contribute to, to, to a larger extent. The, the interest of the open source community is going to shift through a, to a different direction. Um, I would say right now, monitoring has seen an explosion in, in open source contributions. We, we, hmm. have, we have a lot of work being done on, uh, on, on, on open telemetry. Right. Uh, Prometheus uh, is seeing constant contributions. Um, so again, like it, it's just that, it's not that open source is going away, it's, it's just shifting interest. And when it shifts in those interests, is that what's what's driving the need for open source? Is it the I mean, open telemetry is really a protocol approach where there's you know commercial there's there's services that are that are helping promote the telemetry spec, right? Because I, I see that as a client with a service. I, Not I, so I would much say a, yeah. go ahead. I would I would say open source tends to thrive and. 
wild west environments where, where there's no established best uh, best way of doing something. Kubernetes saw a lot of open source contributions because Kubernetes itself was throwing those best practices, putting those best practices on, on their head. You, you no longer needed to install your agents alongside with your application on, on, on a fat OS. Okay. Um, so, so, I mean, that, that was not, not, that was not just Kubernetes, but just containerization in general. Yeah. Um, monitoring again is, is seeing a, a, a renaissance, like the, your, your standard monitoring systems like Nitrous, Savix, et cetera, suddenly don't fit your ecosystem as well anymore as the, those newcomers like Prometheus and, and, and those various telemetry tools. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns there. Uh, again, open source, this is going back to OpenStack, open source being, being uh, very attractive to, to, to academic type people. When, when you have lots of unknowns, uh, this draws in the, the talent that says, hey, th there's a problem here that I could solve. There's no best way of solving it. Let me, let me create a product that, that does it. Right, but creating a product isn't doesn't uh, but, but, really but, drive. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so just, just to be clear, by product, I, I don't mean commercial product. I mean oh, okay. a, a system or, or piece of software. Hmm. Yeah, and if if you compare it in some ways to corporate growth as opposed, so you've got the way open source project grows and the way corporate growth goes. Uh, when you start a company, you've got certain uh, pivot points at certain sizes. So first pivot points around 50 or 60, then you've got a pivot point at a couple hundred. And if you can get beyond those points, then you've survived the next level. But at each pivot point, you have to change some approaches within the company to survive. You have to either add some structure or you have to change communication paths or processes or sales uh, approaches or whatnot. And even uh, development processes or, or uh, what you're selling, how many different things you're selling and whatnot. So these pivot points exist. And for a company to be successful, they have to pivot to deal with the, the new reality of their larger size and open source, I think, is very much the same way. It's there's lots and lots of open source projects that are one one and two individuals. Then you've got ones that go beyond that. But if you're going to survive beyond a certain point, like Klaus said, you have to. Uh, it open source is a thousand flowers blooming, and then only a few of them actually get fertilized and become something more real and and used by a larger group. So Greenfield versus Brownfield, among other things. That is a very good uh, commentary, Rafi. Uh, and since you mentioned the commercial there, um, I mean, this is perhaps a slightly controversial opinion, but uh, I think commercial follows open source. Open source sets the field. It, it as you said, it fertilizes it. And then what, once it once uh, uh, once it becomes apparent that this is a uh, a new field to do to expand into, uh, then commercial comes in with the gold rush, and, and uh, then the dust settles, and, and and you have a couple of uh, established leaders, uh, like we saw with, with cloud computing. Yeah. Interesting. So I, yeah, do you think open, wow, you took that in a direction I didn't expect. Do you think that cloud computing is a straight line with open source? Like 
I, I know Amazon is built on open source and a key to their scale is the lack of lack of license costs because they built they built it. Um, is, do you see that as an open source story? Um, partially, yes. I, I would say that's an open source initiated story. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I think that that element is overlooked in part because it didn't end up as an open source story. Uh, you know, the, the service providers who are in business, you know, built inf infrastructure and maintain the software, you know, that those are industry secrets, but it's, it is common knowledge. So a lot of those pieces are built on open, op, you know, open source contributions, open source platforms that, hmm. that they then modified. I mean, I mean, look at Kubernetes, like, now we now we see Kubernetes as, as the clear winner of, of the orchestration wars, but it, it was not the only contender. You you, you had you had Mesos, yeah. you, you had Docker Swarm at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were not yeah, all open source to to the same degree, but there there was a time where it. I mean, these products were new. It was unclear which one would win out. Uh, and, and that, I think, was the open source apex of uh, container orchestration. Now, now, uh, now open source is less interested in it because we have an established product that is largely considered to be the leader, not necessarily because it's the best solution, but it's because it's a good enough solution. So, the so so instead of going against the the tide uh, and and spending a lot of energy in, in producing a competing open source product, the community is shifting interest to to other things where where they can make a uh, a bigger dent. Yeah, in interestingly, I I think that there's a whole nother can of worms. We could have a conversation just on Kubernetes, which might actually be a worthwhile thing to do. Um, so let me. I'm gonna since we're at the top of the hour, I'm gonna let 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 us wrap this up. Um, I appreciate the conversation. I open source is nuanced and evolving and, and how people perceive it is evolving. And I think the right to repair lens is actually a real, a very real lens. Um, but it also, the innovation filter also you were putting on it, I think is, is absolutely essential when we look at what the, you know, how the future is going to be. Um, and I, one of the themes to me that we talk about all the time and is important is where is the innovation being driven from in the next in this next cycle um i still I, i'll leave that as a as a thought not and not answer it but something to think about is is where's where is the innovation what's what's driving it what's what's creating it what's funding it what's what is, what are the innovators because they're people ultimately the innovators motivations and rewards and I'd like to put one thought around that with the open yeah. source comment. And that is uh, as open source and what its approaches are changes and modifies and companies use more and more of it. Does the company culture change enough to change the ecosystem and the interactions between open source and the company? In the past, companies just kind of took it and used it and didn't feed back. Is that going to change as more people actually get involved in open source or come up through open source and go to larger companies? Or is that interaction going to stay the same? Because that interaction also helps define how what open source's focus is as to whether it's greenfield or brownfield and innovative or not. 
So how the company views and approaches and contributes or not to open source is as important as open source itself. And is it you got to have the right incentives driving the markets. That's right. Yep. Uh, and, and, a, and a good case to, to, to examine for, for, for that might be uh, Audacity. And the company that just bought Audacity uh, is in yet another fight with some open source guy. Oh, no. Did somebody buy Audacity? I missed it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. And, and there was a big debacle there about... Uh, uh, while it, it, it phoning back home with, with, with information and then the the new audacity owners threatening the developers of the of the of a new fork so oh, the, lovely you know, the, there's a lot of salt we, there we didn't even talk about freenode which is also similar yep. God. <laughs> all right yeah there's there's more fires burning on the open source horizon than uh, we oh, yeah. have to mention <laughs> but we are out of time. So until That's next time, everybody. Have a good one. See you guys. See Bye. you guys. Bye-bye. Wow. Of the open source conversations that we've had, um, I really enjoyed that one. It was very straightforward. Um, we really pulled out a lot of the um, back and forth that we sometimes have around projects because people do get very emotional about it and really focused on what is going to drive innovation. But we left it with questions, which are my favorite types of podcasts, for you to think about. How is innovation going to happen in the future? What are the drivers and motivations? And I really think that is a key question and the thing that motivates us in the cloud 2030. Please join us for these conversations at the 2030.cloud. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.